It is good to be with you all. It's always a joy to be here, to worship with you, and to open God's Word with you. I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles, if you haven't already, and open up to Philippians chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. Uh, it's a true story about two men, two pastors, two preachers, actually. Uh, these two men, this is decades ago, they were uh, traveling around the country on a little bit of a preaching circuit, visiting a number of different churches and preaching there, ministering there. In fact, uh, they were hitting 30 churches in 30 days. And uh, at every church they would go to, every evening, um, each of them would take a turn preaching. And they would always go in the same order. And uh, pretty soon, into the, the kind of preaching circuit, the, the, the one friend recognized that every time they were at a new church, his friend would get up and preach the exact same message. And they always were in that order, so he would hear his friend's message, and then he would get up and he would preach, generally speaking, a different message wherever they were. And uh, eventually, he became so familiar with the message that he, he knew it essentially word for word. He, he could kind of mouth the words as his friend was preaching uh, every night, especially the last half of those 30 days. And at the very end, the final day, he decided he was going to play a little trick on his friend. He asked his friend at the last moment if he could preach first that night. And his friend obliged and agreed, and so up he goes into the pulpit, and then he proceeded to preach his friend's sermon word for word, verbatim. He walked uh, from the pulpit down towards his friend and kind of gave a, a little smile as he sat down. His friend then went up to preach his sermon and preached an entirely different message and it was masterful, it was powerful, it was as if he had planned it from the very beginning. Afterwards, his friend went up to him and he said, he said, so, this is the friend who preached his friend's sermon, he said, so uh, what did you think of my sermon? And his friend looked at him and said, well, I think it was about as good as it was when I preached it here a month ago. Some of you are still trying to figure that one out. Now, I say that only to say that I, I'm very much aware, I've become aware this week, of the fact that you guys have recently been as a church in the book of Philippians, and so I'm bringing you back to a passage that you have maybe heard before, even somewhat recently, but, but here's what I want to suggest to you. Um, in many ways, preaching, it's often been said, is the ministry of reminder. P Peter says, as he writes his letter to in 1 Peter, he says, it's no trouble for me to remind you of these things. And I want to remind you of some things today that are of utmost importance. In fact, I would argue that there are certain passages, certain truths in Scripture that are truths we ought to come back to frequently. Passage we passages we ought to be saturated in, that we, we should memorize, that we should regularly soak ourselves in. And this passage here is one of those passages. So it, it's no trouble for me to remind you of these truths today, even if you are uh, in many ways familiar with them. But I trust that if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, it is no trouble for you to be reminded of them today. I trust that it will encourage your soul you see, the passage in front of us really highlights a very important truth. 
it's wanting to remind us of the, the goal of the gospel. Now, the gospel does many things in the life of the believer. The gospel serves many purposes. We have been redeemed from our sin. We are justified. We are made right with God. But oftentimes, we, we look at the results of the gospel in our life, and we can often lose sight of the end goal that God has for the gospel in our life. And scripture tells us that there is a massive goal that the gospel is intended to point us toward. And I want to frame it for you like this. It's, it's in your notes, but let me make sure you see it front and center. The end goal of the incarnation, that is the coming of Jesus, taking on flesh to this earth, is our ongoing adoration. The purpose for which you have been made is actually to know God and to worship him. That's why you were made and that's why you have been saved if you're a Christian today. In fact, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith, it begins by asking this question, what is the chief end of man? And it answers it this way, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's exactly what I'm trying to communicate in this statement. It is about adoration. It is about magnifying Christ. It is about your worship. And since this is to be the goal of our lives, this is something that we ought to fix our eyes upon. And it's something that we ought to cultivate intentionally in our lives. I want to read the text for us today. So let's look at verse 5. I'm going to back up into the context. And then I want to focus our attention on verses 9 through 11. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, and this is our text, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray one more time. Oh, Father, we pray that this truth, this truth would refresh us today. That it would stir our hearts even now, Lord, as we have just heard these powerful words. That they would remind us, Lord, that we have been saved for a purpose there is a goal that you have intended our salvation to lead us to this place of, of adoration, this place of worship. And so we pray, we pray, Spirit of God, that you would move in power in our hearts, that you would cause us to know you more, to love you more, to worship you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And we pray that you would receive so much honor and glory through our time now together. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So since this is to be the guiding principle of our lives, it must be actually cultivated intentionally. So I want to simply ask this question, how do we do this? I want to show you three ways, three ways we cultivate 
adoration. First, I cultivate adoration when I determine his universal position. Now, what Paul has been doing here is moving us through the gospel to get us to this final stage. And you'll notice even in the context that we read, he begins with the incarnation. Again, that's the theological term for God becoming a man. Right, the, the heart of the gospel is that God, he loved us so much that he, he looked down upon us and he saw that there was no way for sinful humanity to make their way back to God. And so out of love, he comes down from heaven for us. He takes on flesh. He walks upon this earth and he lives, as Paul tells us, this obedient life. And he moves us then from the incarnation to the crucifixion. He's obedient even to the point of death uh, and death on a cross where Paul is reminding us that, that Jesus became a curse for us. Cursed is every man who is hung upon a tree. The crucifixion is Jesus taking our, our place. It's the perfect substitute, him paying for our sins, receiving the penalty that we deserved. And oftentimes when we think of the, the gospel, that's often how we frame the gospel. We think of the incarnation and we think of the crucifixion, but we often stop there and we miss the kind of full extent of the gospel. Paul, by implication, pushes us beyond the crucifixion and he pushes us, you'll see here, into the resurrection. He reminds us, in a sense, that our God, though he died, he yet lives. Our Savior conquered sin and death and he rose three days later from the grave. Amen? And that is the heart of the gospel. He conquers our greatest foe and our greatest enemy. But you know what? We can't stop there when we think about the gospel. It's not just that he came, he died, and he rose again. In fact, Paul pushes us deeper into the gospel. And this is going to, listen, it's going to expand the way you think about Jesus and hopefully impact the way you live for Jesus in your life. Notice what he does here. He pushes us into the ascension and to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. He reminds us that yes, Jesus rose from the grave, but Jesus then ascended on high right before the eyes of his own disciples. And now at this very moment, he is seated at the right hand of the Father in the premium place of exaltation and glory. He has the position of authority. And Paul explains this by using some very important language. Notice verse 9. Therefore, God, he says, highly exalted him. Now, if you mark up your Bible, I'd encourage you maybe to highlight or circle or underline those two words, highly exalted. And here's why. Because this is the only time this word is used in the, in the New Testament which means it's unique. And what Paul is doing is kind of like he's taking out a highlighter for us and saying, pay attention to this word. This is incredibly significant. And the word here, it's actually one word in the original language, and it, and it actually implies this position of super exaltation or hyper exaltation. It's almost like a made up word to say that he is supreme over all things. He is high above everyone and everything. And so Paul pulls out all the stops. And this word stresses the incomparable transcendence and absolute majesty of Christ. He's in a class, in other words, all by himself. 
And this is something that the Word of God calls every person to determine. Now, in order to determine it, you need to first discover it. You need to see what God says about it, and that's what Paul is laying out for us. Now, that universal position of authority is actually further explained in the next phrase. Notice verse 9 again. It says that he's highly exalted him. And then it says this, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, that naturally begs the question, well, what is this name? What's the name that's been bestowed on him, the name that is above every other name? And, and now, if you're like me, your, your natural kind of gut reaction to this, your reflex is to say, well, obviously the name is Jesus. But that, that's not what Paul is talking about here. You see, the name Jesus was the name bestowed on him, not at his exaltation, but at his incarnation, right? That was the name, uh, that was the human name that was given to him at his birth. But here, what Paul is doing is connecting a name that is bestowed upon Jesus that is specifically related to his exaltation. You say, well, well, then what is the name? Well, there's a, a kind of a build to this text, and Paul is getting to it, and he's not going to get to the name until we reach chapter 11. And so let me just spoil it for you. The name that he's referring to here is the name Lord. The name Lord is the title, it's the name that rightfully describes who Jesus is in all of its fullness. It expresses in a unique way his majesty, his power, and his authority and sovereignty over all things. It expresses, in other words, his universal position. And this would have been um, controversial to say the least, especially in the ancient world. When Paul was writing in the first century, a huge portion of his audience would have been Jews. He'd always go to the synagogue first, and he would preach there before he went to the Gentile population. And inevitably, he'd run into some conflict. And one of the, the massive kind of points of conflict for Paul was that Paul was claiming something unique about the person of Jesus Christ. I like what Richard Bauckham says, I'll put this quote on the screen for you. Uh, a New Testament commentator, he says this. He says, for Jewish monotheism, do we have this quote? There it is. For Jewish monotheism, sovereignty over all things was definitive of who God is. This is the point of conflict. It could not be seen as delegated to a being other than God. Angels might carry out God's will as servants subject to his command in limited areas of his rule, but God's universal sovereignty itself was intrinsic to the unique divine identity as sole creator and ruler of all. So what Paul is doing here is he's equating their understanding with God with their understanding of Jesus. And what Paul is stating here must be understood as, as pointing to a position of recognizable superiority over all creation now, we have a, an ongoing debate that I would like to settle right here, right now. Do we have any basketball fans in the house? It's like a couple. Seriously? Come on. Just engage a little bit. Basketball fan. Okay. Okay. There's, if you're a basketball fan, you know that there's this ongoing debate about who the greatest basketball player of all time is. Right, who's the GOAT? Who's the GOAT? Okay. Okay. All right. Now, thank you. Okay. Who, okay. Anybody here think LeBron James is the greatest of all time? Anybody? Okay. One, two. Th okay. Okay. That's... 
that's fair. It's okay if you're wrong. It's not a problem. We still love you. <laughs> uh, who, who thinks, okay, who thinks Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player of all time? If your hand's not up right now, you're crazy. Okay, here's my point. My, and you could throw Kobe into the mix or Bill Russell. I mean, you, you name some basketball players. Here's my point. It's a debatable issue to some degree. Right? We, we can all have different opinions on who we think the greatest is, and we can kind of uh, build a case for it. We can stack uh, statistics up against you know, this player and this player. But listen, here's the point that Paul is making. When it comes to Jesus Christ, there is no comparison. There's no one who even comes close. You can't stack anybody or anything up against the superiority of Jesus Christ. He is highly exalted. His position will be universally recognized as unparalleled, unequaled, and unrivaled. And here's, here's the reality. This is objectively true whether you believe it or not. But here's the question. Have you discovered it to be true and determined it to be true for your life? Jesus Christ is Lord over all. He is superior over all. The question is, is he Lord of your life? Is he holding the place of exaltation in your life? And that's an important question. And I want to encourage you not to run too quickly by this. So how, do I, how do I know? How do I evaluate this in my life? How do, I would just say, like, look, evaluate your desires. Evaluate the direction of your life. Evaluate uh, the decisions you make. Where does God's rule factor in how you live every area of your life? Does God rule over every square inch of your heart, of your mind, of your life? Look at how you spend your time. You can often determine what rules your life by looking at your calendar, can't you? It's often been said you can look at your, your time and you can look at your treasure. Your calendar maybe says a lot about what rules your life, what events, what pursuits, what hobbies. Look at your treasure. Look at how you spend your money. What does your wallet or your bank account reveal about how much God rules or doesn't rule your life. Look at your character. Are you constantly working to align your character with the character of Jesus Christ because you know that he rules and you long to be like him in every way? Look at the convictions you hold. Are they being shaped by the world or are they being shaped by the word? Are you being conformed to this world or are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? This is how you can tell how much Jesus is ruling over your life. It's a conscious recognition and decision that eventually translates into action, visible uh, evidence that Christ is in the position of authority in your life. Secondly, I cultivate adoration when I demonstrate my universal submission. Now, if I have determined that he is in the position of supreme authority in my life, then the only proper response is my unquestioned submission. It makes sense, doesn't it? It logically follows. If I determine he is Lord, then I must also determine that I am servant. He is in authority. I must submit to his authority. 
And this is what Paul says in verse 10. Look at what it says. So that, that's a purpose statement here. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That is a statement of submission, isn't it? I mean, the, the statement of submission, when you, when you enter into the presence of a king, in the ancient days especially, you took a posture that demonstrated your submission, his superiority and your inferior, inferiority, and that posture was this position of bowing, getting low. And to really understand the power and force of what Paul is stating here, you actually have to understand where Paul is getting this idea from. Some of your Bibles may have a little footnote there, or if you have a study Bible, you can probably see that what Paul is doing is alluding to an Old Testament passage. He's actually alluding specifically to Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 and 23. We'll get there in just a moment, but I just, here, this is a helpful Bible study kind of tip, okay? I hope you love to study God's word. I hope you want to understand God's word to greater degrees. So one of the ways you can do that is by understanding that when New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, it's incredibly significant. Uh, either direct quote or an allusion. They're actually expecting that you understand why they're quoting the Old Testament. And, and that implies that if you don't, that you're going to kind of learn why they're quoting from the Old Testament. Here's what you'll often find. If you track some of these quotations down or these allusions back to their Old Testament roots, you're going to see that the, the New Testament author actually has oftentimes not just a single verse in view, but a broader context in view. And so here, when Paul quotes from Isaiah 45, it's actually very obvious that he's actually got the context of chapter 41 through 45 in view. And, and let me tell you why. I'm going to just give you a sampling um, from that little section of Scripture. In Isaiah of 41 through 45, uh, Isaiah is showing how Yahweh is Lord. And he's contrasting the God of Israel, Yahweh, with all the other gods, so-called gods of the nations. And listen to how he does this. He says, for example, in chapter 41, 13, I am the Lord your God, using the proper name Yahweh for Lord. In 42, verse 8, he says again, I am the Lord, that is my name. In chapter 43, 11, I, even I am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. In chapter 44, verse 6, it says this. This is what the Lord says. Israel, King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and the last. Sound familiar? Apart from me, there is no God. You see what he's saying? Like, I, he is super exalted. He is the highly exalted one, the one above all other gods. And then four times in Isaiah chapter 45, the Lord declares his absolute sovereignty. Three times he says this in chapter 45, I am the Lord, Yahweh, and there is no other. And once he says this, for I am God, using the Hebrew word El, and there is no other other. It is definitive. And it is with this final declaration of sovereignty that we have Yahweh's call for total and complete submission. Notice what it says in chapter 45, verse 22 and 23. I believe we have it on the screen. There it is. Listen to this. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. What is this word that shall not return? Listen, to me, 
Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. When Paul says, every tongue shall confess, this is not primarily a statement of devotion. It is a statement of submission and confession. And by quoting Isaiah 45, 23, just listen how awesome this is. Paul is making it clear that Yahweh, God, and Jesus are one. In other words, to submit to Jesus is to submit to God. Every knee, he says. Look at the universal nature of this submission. Every knee, no knee excluded, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see, what is he talking about here? Well, this refers to every rational being in the universe. In heaven signifies angelic beings and those who are dead in Christ. On earth designates a living human beings and under the earth refers to dead human beings and fallen spirits. In other words, no knee in the universe is excluded, be it human, angelic, or demonic. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Here's here's what this means. This means that one day, listen, Jesus Christ, he's returning in glory, okay? The the word of God tells us that, that Christ Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, is one day going to return on a cloud. And he's going to return in blazing, majestic, brilliant glory. Every eye will see. And you know what that means? For those of us who have bowed the knee to Jesus here and now, it means that that we will meet him with a joyful submission, a willful submission, just ecstatic ecstasy, worship, and praise, and adoration. But it also means something else very, very serious. Listen, it means this, that when Jesus Christ returns in that blazing glory, the weight of his glory is going to descend upon every single rational creature and those listen who had not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in this lifetime while they had a chance they will not be excluded the weight of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ will press them to the ground in humble submission the only question that you and I have to wrestle with in light of this is this will you bow the knee now in joyful submission Or will you bow the knee later in shameful regret? What kind of submission will characterize your life? By bowing before the Lord Jesus in humble submission, the church actually anticipates the bowing of all creation. I want you to hear this, church. Every time we get together as the family of God, you want to know what we're, we're corporately doing here? We are declaring, are we, not, we, just, we sang so many wonderful songs today about this, but are we not corporately together declaring, Jesus Christ is Lord, we bow the knee to him and to him alone, and we celebrate that truth together. But do you see that that's actually pointing us to the reality that one day all creation will bow the knee? Not, not all creation will be saved, but all creation will recognize and will bow 
we get the privilege of doing it now in this joyful submission, it actually ought to be evident in our lives. We don't want to be people who just display that submission when Jesus returns. We need to be people that the scriptures call us to be, displaying that submission here and now. So I just want to just give you three quick ways that you can daily bow the knee to Jesus, live in submission to him. They're in your notes, but let's just work through these really quickly. First is this, hallow the Lord. Hallow the Lord. And we've done that. That, that. The word hallowed is a, it's kind of an unfamiliar word. It sounds a little old and archaic. We don't use it very often, but it's a word that comes right out of the scriptures, the, at least the, the early translations, right? Do you remember when Jesus um, um, was approached by his disciples and they said to him, Lord, would you teach us to pray? What were the first words out of his mouth? He said, like, he said this, he said, he said, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you see, this is an invitation to to start our day, every day, just like this, bowing the knee to Jesus. Recognize the word hallowed simply means a holy, consecrated. He is is worthy of honor and praise. And so here's my, my encouragement to you. Every day, you ought to roll out of your bed onto your knees, and the first thing you ought to declare is, Father in heaven, you are holy. You are awesome, You are worthy of my submission, of my praise. You are worthy of my full and complete devotion. You know that Acts model of prayer? I mean, it's no accident that it starts with adoration. This sets the tone for your life to go, you are Lord. I'm not Lord. I don't rule my life. You rule my life. Secondly, you need to hear the Lord. It's not enough just to say, God, you're holy. We need to be a people, if we're going to live in submission, we need to know what our king commands of us. And and the only way to do that is to hear from him. You remember Jesus saying in the gospel of John, "My, my sheep hear my voice. You need to be a person who hears the voice of God. And, and thankfully, our God has not been silent. Amen? Our God has chosen to speak to us, and our God has delivered to us inspiration. The word of God is the inspired word of God. It is his voice to us. It's often been said that prayer is us speaking to God. His word is God speaking to us. And you need to be a person who is saturated in the word of God. You need to know the word of God. You need to love the word of God. You need to feast upon the word of God. You need to meditate upon the law of God day and night. Why? Why? So that you can be like a tree. It's planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in its seasons. Leaves never wither. And I I know what some of you are saying. You're like, okay, that's great. God speaks through his word, but I would really love it if God would speak audibly to me. It would be much easier if God just spoke audibly to me. Fine, read the Bible out loud. (laughs) Let me give you one more. How do you daily bow the knee? You got to heed the Lord. James talks about this, doesn't he? He says, it's not enough just to be hearers of the word. You must be a doer of the word. Jesus said it like this. He said to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. You see, it's very obvious, but we need to hear it time and time again because it's so often so difficult. We need to learn to be a people who trust and obey. And and what happens when we do this, when we live with this kind of submission? It's not an exhaustive list, but I hope, listen, if you're anything like me, 
And if I know Canadian culture in particular, I know this, that summertime, kind of things, you know, everybody kind of relaxes a little bit, but at the same time, everybody gets really busy doing a lot of summer things. And I know this, I've seen this in pastoral ministry for years, I've seen this in my own life, sometimes summer means we actually take the foot off the gas in our spiritual lives, right? And here's my encouragement to you, when it comes to this summer, I know we're kind of already in the midst of summer activity, here's what I want to encourage you to do, draw near to the Lord. Don't pull away from the Lord. Don't lose spiritual steam, so to speak. Step on the gas, In every area of your life, make sure Jesus is Lord, that you're living in humble and joyful submission to him. And when you do that, here's what's going to happen. A greater adoration flows from greater submission. Why? Because you begin to learn by experience that our God's uh, law, his word, is not burdensome but a blessing. It's not to hurt you or harm you. It's to help you and to heal you. You see it for what it is, and that submission ends up bringing greater adoration. And that adoration then breeds greater submission. And it works in this kind of secular way in our lives. Finally, I cultivate adoration when I declare the universal confession. Paul is building towards this this crescendo here. Where he says that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And then he makes this powerful statement. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now this this phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord, it's really a shorthand for the gospel. It's, it's the most maybe condensed way of saying the gospel. Let me, let me kind of unpack that quickly for you. Because the name Jesus means God is salvation. Christ simply means the, the anointed one, the Messiah. And Lord, we've already seen, is equating him with God himself. So really this statement is declaring to us that God saves us through the anointed one, Jesus Christ. It actually, in many ways, becomes the the mantra of the church. It's kind of like the banner over the Christian life. It's what unites all Christians everywhere. We see that, that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who has conquered sin and death. He's risen from the grave. He's ascended on high. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. We declare as the umbrella over our lives and our church, I trust this is your your mantra today, Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, our world or our culture has many mantras. Mantras that maybe can sneak into our lives, mantras that seem appealing, our, our, our culture has its confessions, its creeds. Tolerance is Lord. Inclusivity is Lord. Pride is Lord. Sex is Lord. Money is Lord. Power is Lord. But at, at the heart of all of the, the world's confessions and mantras, you could boil it all down to one single statement. And here it is. Listen, I am Lord. And, and this is the statement that is in direct opposition to God. This is the statement that separates all humanity from God. It is the desire to be Lord of your own life and reject his good and kind lordship over your life. 
And you see, Christians, we stand in the midst of a culture that, that has many confessions, but ultimately declaring the same thing. And we stand out and we cry out, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ rules. Jesus Christ reigns. And it's a shadow, that declaration is a shadow and an anticipation of what will ultimately be offered by all of the universe soon. Listen to this, Christian. Soon, every tongue of every rational being in all creation will confess Jesus, Yahweh, is God. Every believing heart will shout it at the top of their lungs and sing it from the depths of their soul. And we, the redeemed, with the angels, will do it over and over and over again for all eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will be the declaration of the redeemed. But it is not just a statement, as I said, of devotion for all who believe. It will be the statement of recognition for all who refused to bow the knee in this life. Isaiah 45 includes this statement, all who have raged against him, who will come to him and be put to shame. Every unbelieving heart will confess it too. In shame-filled submission and despair, Caiaphas will confess it, Pilate will confess it, Hitler will confess it, Stalin will confess it, even Satan will confess it. His knee and his tongue will not be excluded from this declaration. You know, history is not like a, a treadmill that just keeps moving but goes nowhere. It's all moving towards that day. Sadly, it will be too late for so, so many. But listen, church, there is such good news. The good news is this. Listen, Jesus has not yet returned, and there's still time, therefore, to bow the knee to Jesus now. And I want to say to you, maybe you're here today, and you're looking at your life, and you know you've never, you've never embraced Jesus as Savior or Lord. You've lived apart from him. You've rejected him. You've resisted him. But now you see and you sense the Spirit of God moving in your heart and calling out to you and drawing you near. And the Word of God says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you confess with your mouth, sorry, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And I just want to invite you today to embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. And if you have already, there is awesome news for you and I. You see, this passage ushers us into deeper adoration. For we know and acknowledge that we only declare here and now that Jesus Christ is Lord by the grace and mercy of God. Amen? That's it. It's all by grace. And, and the grace of God that saves us now calls us to go unto all nations to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Church, you, you have been saved and sent on mission. You have a message to declare. You see, our adoration of, our, of the saving work of Jesus Christ is actually supposed to fuel our mission. Our confession 
is Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Let me ask you, are you simply confessing this in your heart? Or maybe only at church on Sundays? Charles Spurgeon said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Ouch. He said this, he said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. That church is the mission that we have been given, not fueled by guilt, but fueled by grace, fueled by adoration of all that the Savior has done for us. We now get to go. We are sent by our Lord into the nations to make disciples, to gather a remnant of people who will join us in declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the way Paul ends. You see, it's all about adoration. It's all about his glory. It's all about his majesty. And it's a fitting conclusion No better way to end this than focusing on the glory of God the Father because that is what our hearts have been made to do. We have been made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you have been saved, this is the call that God has restored in your life. It's the greatest statement of adoration. Nothing comes close. It is our joyful confession. I trust it's yours. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The end goal of the incarnation is our ongoing adoration. May this desire fill our lives and pour forth from our lips this day and every day until we see his face again in glory. Let's pray. Lord of glory, you are highly exalted. Your name is the name above all every name. And Lord, we joyfully declare today that you, Jesus Christ, are Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray that our hearts would be so stirred by this truth that it would impact the way we we live our lives, that it would be what flows from our lips as we bear witness to the, the saving grace of the gospel. And as we gather together, even now, Lord, as we will stand to our feet, I pray that that mantra, that confession, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father would ring forth from our hearts and that you would receive much honor, much praise and much adoration, for we declare that you are holy and you are worthy of it all. So receive it now, we pray, in the powerful and precious name of King Jesus. Amen.